Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. I closed my eyes, drew back the curtain, to see for certain what I thought I knew. These are lyrics from the musical Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. It was a show that saw the musical theatre debut of a very young Peter Ayers. Though not awarded the title role of Joseph, I was cast as his father, Jacob, and so commenced my journey of playing a series of patriarchs in musicals to follow. Perhaps my height had something to do with that. But I digress. The lyrics, of course, were penned by Tim Rice, and it thrills me that Sir Tim Rice joins us in today's conversation, celebrating episode 400 of the podcast. Tim is the perfect guest with which to celebrate this milestone. A fellow podcaster himself, his Get Onto My Cloud podcast provides fascinating insight to his celebrated career and process. So Tim is also a titan of the industry who has collaborated with a vast range of composers. Andrew Lloyd Webber, Alan Menken, Elton John, Bjorn Ulvaeus and Benny Anderson, giving us some of the most brilliant scores for musical theatre on stage and screen. Who is not aware of Any Dream Will Do? I Don't Know How to Love Him, Don't Cry For Me Argentina, One Night in Bangkok, I Know Him So Well and Hakuna Matata. Songs from a vast catalogue that have been regular touchstones throughout our lives. And he's a very nice bloke to boot. When we caught up for this conversation, Tim had just finished a four-date world tour titled Circle of Words and had recently returned from the opening of his musical, written with Elton John, Aida, in Holland. You can imagine what a treat it was to host Sir Tim Rice in this 400th edition of the Stages podcast. So without any further ado, happy birthday, 400. Here we go, Sir Tim Rice. So, Tim Rice, welcome to the Stages podcast, and thank you for joining me in this 400th episode to uh, to celebrate the podcast uh, six year. Wow, 400! That's that's pretty good. Very good. <laughs> it keeps me very busy. Um, so, it's nice to talk also to a fellow podcaster. Um, I must say, uh, get on to my cloud. Your your podcast is regular listening for me. It's it's been quite addictive and. I have to say, if only Lorenz Hart, W.S. Gilbert or Ira Gershwin had a podcast to offer their incredible insight and reflection as you do. Do you find it a, a great way to um, reassess your work? Yes, I guess I do, although I haven't done any for, for about four or five weeks because I've just been very busy on other things. It's, and I began it in lockdown 
And it was therefore fairly easy to do one a week because there wasn't a lot else happening. And it's been harder to do one a week or even one a month since then. But um, I haven't given up on it. I've done 71, I think, now. And um, I'll certainly do a few more. I might need to drag guests into it as basically, as as you obviously know, there it's me alone, sometimes playing some music, usually playing a bit of music as well. But they're quite short. They I try to keep them below about 25 minutes because I feel people don't want more than 25 minutes. Of course, if it's your brilliant podcast, then they would want a lot more than 25 minutes. But <laughs> You're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> I start boring myself after about um, after about 20 minutes. The joyous thing about your podcast, I think, is, yes, you do play musical tracks, but they are often tracks from your own personal collection. Or, you know, I, I listened yeah. yesterday to the um, the, the chess uh, episode in which you played um, songs actually in Russian because there's a, a production happening in Russia. Yes, yes. Um, well, well, there's been, weirdly, um, one of the biggest successes for chess has been in Russia which um, was quite rewarding, except the problem was halfway through the run, although we didn't know whether it was going to be halfway through the run at the time, the war in Ukraine um, broke out, this appalling invasion. And um, we immediately thought, well, we better pull, pull the show. But the director of the show and the producer said, we really would... I mean, feel free to do whatever you want, but we are totally opposed to this appalling, evil invasion. And we'd like to keep the show on. And we thought, well, I guess if if if, if he feels that's the right thing to do, that, and, and, and if everybody involved with chess in Moscow feels that way, then why not? But what we've done is, well, two things. Firstly, we said, well, you can keep it going if you want to, but take it off if you need to or whatever. It's entirely up to you. But, but any future royalties we will we will donate to um some cause uh which will basically to some Ukrainian cause and um surprisingly it has amassed it, it it then went on um to run for about a year after the war started in February 2022 and it only closed quite recently and um there's a nice pot of cash which we are proposing to, give to the relevant Ukrainian charities. But it's a strange one because, as you know, chess is 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 a kind of Cold War musical set set in the days when America and Russia were, were very much polarized against each other. And things changed or appeared to change. Um, and now it seems to me we're sort of almost going back to that. Um, and yet the show which is pretty anti-America and anti-Russia, or certainly the politicians, um, has been a huge success in Russia. It's weird. Um, so it's quite gratifying in a way because we feel that, that, that whatever message there might be in chess, and I'm not sure there even was one, but um, is actually having impact in lots of different parts of the world. I mean, that 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 particular show and the records have, have done very, very well almost everywhere. Um, which is which is very rewarding, I guess. It's certainly a show that we've seen uh, probably four or five productions of professionally uh, on the Australian yeah. stage alone. Well, the funny enough, the, on, a lot of the professional productions haven't haven't done as well as say Evita or Superstar or Lion King. Um, but 
it the, the, the show has so many smaller productions everywhere in the world and we are i believe going back to broadway um in early early next year early 2024 um and and it's been done in many major stages throughout america since it flopped on broadway initially in in 1988 so i think the show is is alive and well and people say well it's much more relevant now because you know the, the putin and everything and in a way i suppose you could argue that but but um i sort of feel that if a show or a piece or a book or a play or anything is is good it will be relevant at any time because most good stories aren't really just about the events they describe but they're about human nature and human nature never changes it's it's the same um through the generations through the centuries so as shakespeare proved if you write about characters who are believable then they will be relevant to future generations i'm not for one minute suggesting that chess or superstar is up there with shakespeare but but i think the point stands if if you if you deal with believable people then your work has a chance of being relevant to future generations i suspect superstar and chess and a couple of other shows will be around for another couple of hundred years that people will still be enjoying yeah, it's very annoying that i won't be around to get the royalties <laughs> Now, so Tim, do you have a, a CD player in your car? No, and I'm very annoyed about that. I bought, I, I know nothing about cars, and I went into, um, I'm, I always remember my, my, my late dad saying, there's no such thing as a bad car these days, they all work. And so it's a personal matter. And, and I've never been that interested in cars. And I went into a showroom. I'd, ha I'd had one car for about 10 years, and it was getting a little bit long in the tooth, and I thought, I'll treat myself to a new car and also i just got a dog and i needed a car that could take a dog easily quite a large dog so i walked into the showroom and bought a land rover yes i think it's a land rover a discovery i'm not sure as don black the great always says if you say what car what what kind of car have you got don he says a red one well, well that's that's about my limit of understanding cars anyway there was a nice car in the um showroom and uh, the bloke said, you want to take it for a test drive? I said, well, it works, doesn't it? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I don't need to. And I got it home. Basically, the main thing about this car was, this discovery, was that it was instantly available. And I had it within two days of seeing it. Um, but when I got into it, after, and, and it worked fine. I drove it around. The dog was quite happy in the back. And then I thought, I must play some CDs in the car. And I found the car did not have a CD player. Cannot believe it. Um, this is appalling. And it was too late to take it back, or at least I could have done, but it probably would have cost me a fortune. But apparently virtually no new car has a CD player today. You've got to do it, rig up your phone and do all that boring stuff. Um, what was your question? But I was, I was just <laughs> having a rant. Cars <laughs> don't I was about to ask, um, what CD do you have um, in your car at in the my moment? Car. But... No, unfortunately, I once had my car broken into my previous car when I did have a CD player. And I wish I'd never sold the car now. Um, and it was rather annoying because the burglar or the robber uh, stole a lot of coins that I, that I used for parking meters. And um, I think he stole a jacket that was lying in the back, but did not steal my CDs. He obviously, I, they, they were all out. He'd taken them all out of the glove box. He obviously looked at them and thought, 
oh, Emily Brothers, Elvis Presley, I don't want this. <laughs> so my taste in CDs did not go down well with um, the burglaring community in London. You're recently back from Holland where um, AIDA opened, um, hopefully at the beginning of a potential UK yeah. uh, performance well, because it's never been seen, has it, in the West End? No. Um, again, it's another one that's done. It, it ran for five years on Broadway and was quite a substantial hit. And we won a Tony for the best score. And it really was a, it's in the top 40 long running Broadway musicals or something, um, if that means anything. And um, it never got to London. It played in Korea, it played in Japan, it's played in Holland before this recent one, it's played in Germany, it's played in, in, in quite a few countries in big versions and, and quite a lot in, in smaller versions. So it's quite an international show, but it's never really come to England. I think there might have been a couple of student productions somewhere. So um, we just got together after working it all out in New York um, last year, restaging it and then taking it to Holland, or rather taking our work to Holland and then doing it with a wonderful director named Shelley Williams, who, and she was actually in the original Aida cast as a singer, um, singing quite an important role, Nehepka. And Shelley has directed Aida afresh for Netherlands, the Holland, for Holland, where the show has been hit before, with the view of this version going to London. And it went really well at the opening night, which was only about 10 days ago in, in Scheveningen, um, near The Hague. And everybody was agreed that this version was right for London. So with a bit of luck um, and a fair wind, we should be opening Aida in, in London I would guess late, late uh, 23 or probably early 24. What would probably happen is we'll have an out of town tryout, which I think is always sensible. We'll go to some great provincial theater in, in England, such as um, Leicester or Birmingham or Manchester and try it out there and fine tune it for London. That's the, that's the cunning plan, but I'll be very pleased because it's a nice score, There's some lovely songs in it. And Elton who wrote the music, um, that's Elton John. Um, <laughs> how many other Eltons? <laughs> um, uh, Elton, who wrote the music, it was one of his really best scores. There's some lovely melodies in it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So uh, your shows have had productions all around the world, which would mean that um, they need to be sung in different languages. Yeah, well, the, the recent Aida was sung in Dutch. I do not speak Dutch. Nobody speaks Dutch, actually, apart from the Dutch. Um, and in a way, I, I mean, good for the Dutch to putting it on in their own language, but it would have made, in a way, more sense um, to have done it in English because then they would have got the total intent of the show. I mean, I'm sure the translations have been brilliant. Um, so, so it obviously works in Dutch. But um, it would be quite nice for us to see this new version done in English. We'll have to wait till we get to England for that. Do you get any control over the translations? Well, in theory, I do. But as I don't really speak any language phenomenally well, um, other than English, uh, it's I mean, I speak French tolerably um, and I can understand a French version of, 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 of a show or even of other people's shows. But I, I wouldn't really know if the lyrics were Keats standard or Hallmark greetings card standards. It's 
I, and, and, and so you do get control. What, what, what they do with a language like Dutch, which I don't speak, they'll say, here is the Dutch translation. And here it is translated back into English with no attempt made when it's translated back, you know, to making it rhyme or scan. It just tells you literally what the words say in Dutch. And um, reading it, the Dutch um, translators had obviously got the story and the characters pretty accurately. So, and it went down an absolute storm with the audience on the opening night. So I can only assume it was quite a good translation. I have a lyric here that I'd like to share with you and, and give me your opinion on it. Um, here I have a lovely parrot, sound in wind and limb. I can guarantee that there is nothing wrong with him. Well, that is um, that is the first lyric I wrote with Andrew Lloyd Webber. And it, it, I, I think it's quite good. It's quite funny and it rhymes. And um, hang on, I'm sorry, there's a load of interruptions here. Can, can You're right, clear mate. The... Yeah, okay. No, there's... Um... Okay. Oh, sorry, we're going to have to... You're right. A... Delightful, grandchild, wonderful. No, no, it's not, no, it's it's somebody else's child. Somebody, <laughs> someone but, else's um, story. Yeah, someone else's story. It's, it's nothing to do with me. I hasten to add. <laughs> Very lovely little girl. She's any she's only one and a half, but she likes to come into the office and. Oh, anyway, <laughs> where was I? That was the first lyric I ever wrote with um, Andrew Lloyd Webber's music. He was writing a musical, or he had written a musical based on the life of Dr. Thomas Bernardo, who um, was a Victorian philanthropist. And when I met him, he'd written this entire show. And the lyricist was just a friend of his at school who didn't really want to pursue lyrics. And Andrew felt that the lyrics weren't quite right, but he felt that his tunes were okay. And in fact, we then, um, so I'm getting, I'm getting completely confused here. I'm going to start again. Can we shut the door? I'm sorry, Gogo. Sorry. Oh, God. Drives you out of the wall. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, try again. Right, right, I'll go back to the parrot. Yeah, don't worry. I really um, feel happiest if there's absolutely nobody around most of the time. <laughs> oh, I agree. I agree. I'm the same. Yeah, it's very hard to do anything. Right, I'll go back. You have just quoted the first lyric I ever wrote with Andrew Lloyd Webber, or rather with Andrew Lloyd Webber's music. And I'd met Andrew a week before. I'd heard about him as being somebody who was a talented composer. He was only 17 and he was looking for someone to work with, at somebody who could write words because he wasn't very good at words. And through a long chain of events, I'd heard about Andrew and anyway I went to meet him and I was very quickly impressed by how good he was he was 17 he sat down at the piano bashing out tunes left right and center and they were they were all theatrical tunes Andrew was very interested and knew all about the Beatles and the Stones and Cliff Richard and all the people who were big in England at the time um, and indeed still are um, and and he was very much into into the current rock and pop scene but his real love was theater and he was he worshipped Lionel Bart and Richard Rogers and 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 Cole Porter and all these great um, theater composers um and he'd written this musical at school based on the life of Dr Thomas Bernardo who was a Victorian philanthropist and the guy who wrote the lyrics was a very nice guy he went on to become a very successful doctor surgeon 
wasn't really interested in pursuing a career with Andrew in the theatre. You know, he, he, he wanted to do something incredibly reckless, like become a doctor. And um, uh, Andrew was absolutely set in his, in, in, in his ways. He was so determined even then to make it in the musical theatre. And I, at the time, was a law student and I was failing in the law, but I, was, and I wasn't particularly into theatre, but I knew that I could see in Andrew a great talent. And, and I did know a bit about the scores of, of, of some of these shows. And he asked me if I would write words to his Dr. Bernardo music. And the story was all there. And I had to kind of write words that weren't the same as Robin Barrow, who was the um, chap who'd, who'd written the original lyrics. I had to try and avoid copying that too much. But anyway, it worked really well. We we found that we had um, uh, a a sort of, I don't know what the word is really, but 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 it, but it, but it, but it, it we we seem to be as one writing. You know, the words and the music fitted each other very well, um, and that, as it happened, I've always preferred writing funny lyrics to serious ones. And the first song I had a go at was this auctioneer's song, in which um, an auctioneer was singing the chorus, "Going, going, 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 gone," and I could, I could choose whatever objects I liked for this sale, as long as it ended up with the final object being a house that Dr. Bernardo was going to buy for his children. Um, and I thought a parrot would be quite a funny thing to put into the song. And the first lines, taking a long time to get to this, but the first lines of the song, the auctioneer's song, Going, Going, Gone, was this auctioneer trying to flog a parrot. Here I have a lovely parrot sound in wind and limb. I can guarantee that there is nothing wrong with him. And Andrew thought that was very good. And, and, and that kind of those crucial lines got our relationship um, off to a good start. I've got some other lyrics here, if you don't mind. I'll quote them to you and see see what memories they they inspire or, or, or anecdotes that come up. So here's the next one. Oh, the shame to be shackled like this. I'm a lonely chained male. Not the sort I'd have thought who'd ever end up in jail. <laughs> well, that's from Blondel, which is a show that ran for about a year in the West End in London and didn't really do that well. And I feel it's a bit underrated. That's a song sung by King Richard the Lionheart um, when he's uh, locked up in prison. And the plot of Blondel, Blondel is a musician. It's set in the 12th century. And Blondel is, is, is roaming around Europe trying to find England's missing king. No one quite knows where he is. This is obviously a few years before mobile phones and things like that. So <laughs> the sort, yes. Yeah. So um, and that, again, is you, you've um, chosen what I like to think of as a, as a, as a funny lyric. He's, he's, um, the song is called Salad in Days, which is obviously a play on Salad Days, a great um, British musical. Salad Days, of course, is a well-known phrase. But um, there was a musical called Salad Days in London in the early 50s, which was a big success. And, and one of the few shows I had seen before I met Andrew. And um, Richard is has this song called Saladin Days because Saladin was the um, enemy or the, the um, person he was trying to fight on the Crusades, or he did fight on the Crusades. He was the chap who, who owned the... Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm... I'm I'm getting distracted again. I'm getting out the wall here. <laughs> can I can I move into another room because it's just yes, certainly, certainly. No, you're right. Good for you. Yep, yep, sure. <laughs> it's okay. It's just been a nightmare today. 
No, um, right, I shall not go and try this in another room. Another house, I think. Are you still there, Peter? I, I am, Tim. Yes, that's great. I'm giving you a tour of my house now. It's quite interesting. It's wonderful. There's a lovely yes. portrait of Ava Perron on the wall. Yes, that's that's yes. Queen Anne. Oh, and then oh, here is, is oh, Sarah, Sarah Duchess of Marlborough. Oh, wow. This is yep. um, Henry VIII. Yep, love them. Mary Tudor. I collect royal paintings. Right. Oh, let me see if I can it's just It's funny. I've just had three days holiday. Hang on. I'm yep, sure. Door. Yep. I think I can probably give you an hour now. Um, the uh, I've had oh, is it the other doors open? I'm going to <laughs> I love it. I love it. Right. I should have been here in the first place, but no, I've had three days um, bank holidays and the coronation holiday coming up and everything. And um, that's it. Right. I'm I'm ready to rock. And it's great when no one's here. And then suddenly everybody turns out. You've got kids coming in. The the housekeeper's little girl. Uh, just I can do no work unless I'm on my own. Right. Where were we? I was telling you, um, Richard. Stop. Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll do the money. Sell it days. Yeah. That was a song. Actually, I've, I've, I've done most of that, haven't I? No, well, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll start again. Um, that's a lyric from a show I wrote with Stephen Oliver, a lovely man who's sad to say no longer with us. He was a classical composer and he'd written some wonderfully modern classical operas. And I dragged him a bit down market. Um, I met him in Australia, funnily enough. We came out for the um, Sydney Arts Festival in 1977. And he was invited to speak about classical music and opera. And I was invited to speak about musicals. And that was one of my, it was my second ever trip to Australia, which is, um, and, and that was the trip really that cemented my love of your great country. I thought it was fantastic. And I got to know, <clears throat> excuse me, I got to know Stephen. And um, Stephen and I became very good friends and we saw each other back in England. And when I wanted to write something while Andrew was doing Cats, and I had this idea for the story of, of, of Blondel the Minstrel, who was um, uh, on, on a lone quest to find the missing King Richard the Lionheart, who'd gone out on a crusade and on the way back from the crusade, during which he'd fought Saladin, um, the uh, sort of Muslim uh, anti-Christian um, leader, although we didn't go into that too much. Um, on the way back, he was fighting. He, 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 was, he was captured by the evil Duke of Austria, but no one knew where he was, and the Duke of Austria lo locked him up. I mean, the king had disappeared, and... Uh, the Duke of Austria then eventually revealed where he was and, and he wanted a ransom and all that. But the basic story of Blondel was um, it could be as, as, as inaccurate as the story of Robin Hood. Um, the basic story was um, Blondel cruising around Europe, playing one of Richard's favourite songs to try and find the missing king. And he would sing his songs outside lots of castle walls all over Europe hoping Richard would join in. And eventually Richard did join in. He got the right castle and eventually Blondel managed to get Richard coming home. It's a ludicrous story, but it's a legend, a bit like Robin Hood, as I said. And it was quite funny. And um, Stephen and I wrote this show, which um, it, it, it worked quite well. And it ran um, in, in Bath and it played in Manchester and, and then it played in the, in the 
the old Vic, and then it went to the West End. Um, and it did okay, but it's never really been done over much since. Some people have done it, and you've just quoted um, some of the lyrics from it, and I think it's quite a funny show. And I keep meaning, if I can get round to it, to try and mount a nice new production of it. Nothing big, because it's a small show. It's a bit like Joseph, in a way. We're aiming for the, for the Joseph market, and I think it could be big in schools, actually. So eventually, Peter, out of all that, you've got a very interesting um, tour of um, some pictures. You've got uh, kids being kicked out of <laughs> the office. <laughs> anyway. Now, I, I love the backdrop that's behind you now, all of those. Uh, oh, yes, that's, yes, that's art. Royal paintings. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's tragic that it's, it's that, that's Mary II behind. It's tragic that this is only um, sound, sound only, because you're... you're your many admirers and fans will be missing some of these wonderful pictures. They will anyway. be missing out, yes. Well, here's another lyric. Let's have a listen to this one. Who'll speak for love, be a true defender of all its pain and splendour, of ties that bind, hearts over mind, and who will say that love is good, love is kind, who'll speak for love? Wow, well, that's a fairly serious lyric. Um, and the music for that one was written by the late, great Bert Bacharach, who I got to know in the later stages of his life. I was a great fan of his, of course. And um, I can't quite remember how I managed to get the job on that one, except we were initially brought together by a film director who wanted a song for a film called Stuart Little, which is a sort of um, children's fable in a way. I don't know whether the, 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 I think the film did quite well. I, I don't know whether it was over released in Australia, but it, but it's um, it's based on a, on a, on a mouse. Um, so it's it's a it's a yes children's we had story. it we had it, a great film um Hugh um Hugh um uh, I'm trying to Hugh Laurie this. Hugh Laurie was in it yeah. yes yeah. yes it was a, it was it was a, it was a very nice film and um the director who was um one of the directors of the Lion King film which was how I got to know him um he he was very keen to um enlist my help again and he wanted a song for Stuart Little and he. He'd managed to approach Bert Bacharach and thought he'd put the two of us together. And we wrote a song for Stuart Little. I'm trying to remember now what it was called. It was called Walking Tall, which, of course, Stuart being very small, he, he walked tall. So we tried to walk tall. And um, that was how I got to know Bert. And it was a great pleasure to meet him. And he was involved with, um, not personally, it sounds, sounds putting it wrong, he, he was working with a very talented Dutch singer called Trinti Usterhus or something like that. And quite a big star in Holland, very big star in Holland. And he, she was doing an album of, of, of Bacharach songs, um, all the great hits, you know, I Say a Little Prayer and all those sort of things. Walk on by. Songs. Walk on by, House is Not a Home, you know, Wishing and a Hoping. I mean, it was a great album of Trinti, whatever her name is. God, that's awful. I can't pronounce it. Trinti. Trinti sings Bacharach. And um, uh, I think it was the second volume of it. She'd, she'd done one volume already, and it was a big hit in, in, in um, Holland. And she sang them in English. Um, and Bert wanted to put a new song into this package. And he gave me this lovely tune, and I wrote, it's difficult really, because I thought, gosh, I'm up against people like Hal David. And it was very much a Hal David, Bert Bacharach period tune, but Hal David, great man, he, 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 was no longer with us at that point. Um, otherwise, I'm sure he would have got the job. Um, but I wrote a lyric 
which you've just read called Who'll Speak for Love. And um, Trinchy's sang it um, beautifully and it's on the album. And it was a big hit single in Holland. And I kind of thought it would be nice if it was, or if it had been released over here or if somebody had covered it. But when um, I was recently doing a, very recently, I'm talking February 19, oh gosh, Freudian slip, February 20, 20 <laughs> and um, 2023. And the, I, was, I was doing a few concerts, just fun shows, very, very lighthearted. I chat and very good singers sing the songs and I tell the sort of stories I'm telling you now. And I got the news um, that Bert Bacharach had died and we were doing just four dates with a very good um, team of singers, two, 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 two girls, two guys, and a, and a little band led by a good friend of mine called Duncan War. And I was interviewed on the radio about Bert Bacharach because people knew that I'd met him. And um, somebody played the song on, the, on one of his chats. And I thought, why don't we put their song into the show? Because it's a nice song. And I'm talking about my songs. So um, one of the um, ladies who was in the in the in the little choir we had had a voice suited for it and she sang it the next night she had to learn it pretty sharpish and it went down really well even though it was one of the few songs in the show that nobody knew because mainly it was it was the hits and it was it was it reminded me bearing in mind it was five or six years since i'd written the song with Bert backtrack it reminded me what a good song it was and um if i do a few more shows on those lines which we might well do because they went on quite well or even on a tour of australia with this show um which i did do many years ago actually similar sort of thing i think i would include that in it it's a it's a really nice song um and burt Bacharach, of course genius the compose some of the composers that you have have worked with have had established writing relationships you talk about burt Bacharach and hal david um, Alan Menken had Howard Ashman. Uh, Elton John wrote with Benny Taupin for a long time. What's it like coming in then to to establish a new collaborative relationship and find the groove well, between the two of you? Is that difficult or, or easy? Well, yeah, I don't think it was particularly difficult. I mean, the, the difficult part of writing any song is writing the song, um, getting the words right. Um, and... In every case, I wasn't trying to usurp a previous writer, and the composer was delighted to do it. And um, in the case of working with Alan Menken, because Howard Ashman, sad to say, had died, and um, Alan needed a new collaborator, um, I was on the spot because um, Alan and I were both working for Disney at the same time on different projects. And it might not have worked. I hadn't even met Alan. I knew his music, of course. But we got on very well, and um, I had to write pretty sharpish a couple of songs for Aladdin, a couple of lyrics for Aladdin, and one of them, "A Whole New World," went so well that I think um, you know we'd 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 kind of proven that it, our our combination could work. And I've done a fair amount of stuff with Alan since. But I wasn't, I mean, if Howard had still been around and he was a brilliant lyricist, then undoubtedly Howard would still be writing with Alan today. And then um, with Elton, Elton really, Bernie Taupin is one of the great lyricists of all time, but he's probably not really a theater lyricist so much. I mean, his his lyrics are superb and I'm sure they, they could be put into a, um, 
you know, show that that, that, that told wonderful stories because I I feel each of his songs, each of Bernie's lyrics tend, tends to be a little musical on its own, like a two or three minute story. I mean, like Daniel or or Candle in the Wind, and 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 you kind of want to know a bit more, but they describe such interesting and strange situations that you feel there's a show in each one. But when it came to a more conventional show, um, if, if, it, if it can be called conventional, like Lion King or Aida, um, basically it was, it was Lion King that Elton was interested in initially. And that relationship worked well. And um, I was already established as the potential lyricist for the Lion King. And they asked me, who would you like to write the music? And I said, well, Elton John, but you won't get it. I knew Elton a little bit, I'd met him, and he had written with other people. He'd already written with people like Gary Osborne with great success. Um, songs like Blue Eyes and Nikita were big chart hits. And then he'd written with Tom Robinson. So he'd written with other people. Um, so it wasn't absolutely 100% in, written in stone that he had to write with Bernie. And um, this was not really a sort of Bernie-type project, I don't think. But it worked really well, and it worked so well that, that, that when... Disney said, well, why don't you and Elton do something else and um, proposed Aida that, that, that we did that as well. But I mean, Bernie is always going to be quite rightly the lyricist most associated with with with, with Elton's work. And who uh, was the other one you mentioned? Somebody else I, I stepped in for, maybe not. No, no Mencken, Mencken, Elton John and Bert Bacharach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it. yeah. So with the theatre, you're you're writing for for character. You're telling a story. You're putting words into the mouth of Ava Perron or, or Mary Magdalene or, or, or Svetlana. Um, the list goes on, Princess Jasmine. Uh, what's it like writing for a specific talent, though? You know, somebody like Freddie Mercury or indeed Elvis Presley. Um, are there considerations that you need to take take in? Well, I've never been particularly good or successful with writing one-off songs. But again, um, the Elvis song, I happen to know, got to know Elvis's music publisher, uh, Freddie Beanstalk who was the man who really had a big say in what songs Elvis recorded. And Freddie had an office in London. He was American and spent a lot of time, obviously, working with Colonel Parker and Elvis Presley. But he had an office in, in London. He came here a lot and, 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 and he would look for good English songs that Elvis could record that hadn't been done by anybody else. And so quite a few English songwriters got, got a song or two recorded by Elvis. And we were very keen. We, we were still comparatively new to the business and, and we, we'd done Superstar, but that was about it. But Superstar was our calling card. And Freddie said, well, if you, want, if you write a couple of songs for Elvis, I'll certainly make sure he hears them. So we did. And we wrote two songs, um, one song called It's Easy For You, which was a ballad and a rocker called Please Don't Let Lorraine Come Down, which was a song about um, a guy who was in a, in a basement flat living below a rather dodgy woman called Lorraine. And um, he was very he was very innocent and very worried that Lorraine would come down the stairs and visit him. So it was, it was a silly song, really. And for some reason, Elvis didn't do that one. <laughs> it was a ballad. And, 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 and the ballad was written with Elvis in mind. So it was, you know, a sort of country-flavoured, gentle rock song. But I also made sure that the lyric might have appealed to him because it was all about a guy who'd left his wife and then was now in turn being jilted by his lover. And he was saying, well, it's all very well for you. You can just move on. But 
think, you know, I've, I've, I've left my wife, I've done all this, I've, I've sacrificed a lot. And it was an interesting song. And, and, and in one of the takes, you can hear Elvis saying, gee, some of these lyrics are a bit close to home. So maybe the lyrics, plus the very nice tune Andrew wrote, but maybe the lyrics were a factor in, in Elvis wanting to record the song. And he recorded it in, we, I think we sent it to him in 74, he recorded it in 76. And it was on his final album that was released in 77. So it took a long time. We'd, we'd sent the song off and almost forgot about it because we didn't hear much for two years. And Freddie Mercury, while well, I was a, out of the blue, I mean, I knew Freddie a bit because I'd suggested that Elaine Page recorded an album of Queen songs. And this was Queen songs now are, regard, are regarded quite rightly as standards and a lot of people cover them as being a musical featuring them but but back then um although the songs are all most of them had been mega hits there hadn't really been too many cover versions especially by somebody who was more of a theater singer than a rock singer and elaine did a lovely album of queen songs and um freddie loved it and freddie got in touch with with um elaine and and me i was i don't think i think i was on the record as the executive producer it was my idea really i can't remember i didn't I, I wasn't earning any money from it i hasten to add um because i didn't write any of the songs but freddie liked it we, and elaine and i got to know freddie and freddie then said to me um by then he was doing his barcelona album he said do you think you could help me out with a couple of lyrics on barcelona and i thought wow fantastic and he then gave me two very sophisticated backing tracks, which were the essence of what became the Golden Boy and the Fallen Priest. And I, because they were five minute epics, I wanted to turn them into a sort of mini opera. And they were, Freddie loved them, they worked well. Um, and they were part of the Barcelona album with Montserrat Caballi. And it was, it was so sad that he died, not I mean, obviously, primarily because it was sad that this great talent was taken, taken so young. But I felt Freddie was such a great character, such a great composer, with such a had so much taste that I thought I would love to write. I thought this when I was working on Barcelona, not knowing at that point that Freddie was ill, and and I thought it would be wonderful to write a musical or a grand opera with Freddie because. That's obviously where he's going to go. I mean, Queen will go on forever as they have, but he'll want to do other things. And maybe, maybe between us, you know, getting to know him quite well, we could, we could, we could, we could write something major. But of course, sad to say that never happened. It was never even really discussed because it all seemed to happen tragically quickly after after Barcelona. I took my troubles down to Madame Ruth. You know that gypsy with the gold cap tooth. She's got a pad down on 34th and Vine. What do you think of that lyric? Brilliant. I hasten to say that, as your listeners will know, I did not write that one. That was written by Jerry Lieber. And that's from the wonderful song Love Potion Number 9. And Jerry Lieber wrote a lot of brilliant lyrics with great music, rock music, um, mainly um, blues music, supplied by Mike Stoller. Um, Lieber and Stoller, they were record producers extraordinaire. They worked a lot with African-American and black singers, which was slightly unusual for white producers and writers in those days. And of course, they had a lot of hits with Elvis, including Jailhouse Rock, Hound Dog. A, a wonderful uh, musical review, uh, Smokey Joe's Cafe. 
Yeah, yeah. Smoky Joe's Cafe. I mean, they 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 wrote for Peggy Lee. They wrote for the Coasters. They wrote for the Drifters. They were they were just world class um, contemporary uh, writers of their day, and their songs are still going strong. But and I think for me, it was the lyrics of Love Potion Number no. Nine and Jailhouse Rock. I mean, they were lyrics that would have graced any Broadway show better than most most Broadway show lyrics. And um, I always felt that um, Love Potion Number no. Nine. I took my problems down to, I mean, I mean, the, the, the best couplet in that is, I told her that I was a flop with chicks. I'd been that way since 1956. <laughs> <laughs> great, great lyric. And Jailhouse Rock, you know, um, come on, everybody, don't you be no square if you can't find a partner, use a wooden chair. I mean, the, the whole of Jailhouse Rock is a brilliant lyric. Yeah. As indeed are things like King Creole, I mean, it's a great lyric, or, or Crawfish, I mean, wonderful early Elvis stuff. I mean, if we listen to the King Creole album or the Jailhouse Rock EP or some of the songs on um, uh, Loving You and 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 those very early Elvis Presley pre-army stuff, a lot of it's Liebestaller and it's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, back to chess again. I think it's one of the most sublime musical scores written for the theatre. Um, and one of my favourite songs was added for the Broadway production. I'm talking about someone else's story. I think it's just just beautiful. Um, can you tell me about how that came to be? Why why was that show constructed for for Broadway? Well, it's a long and confusing story, which I certainly won't go into in great detail. But basically, we had a bit of bad luck with Chess. The album came out and did really well. And the album, and we toured the album with an orchestra, and those concerts were a huge success, even though at the time, the score wasn't really known. We 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 toured the concert version to promote the album. And um, anyway, there was then everybody wanted to stage it. And the it, it because the album had done well in America, um, and everybody was saying this is one of the best scores, you know, for years. Um, we had almost too many too many cooks really and we ended up with michael bennett and the schubert organization producing the show um and michael bennett was a great director great choreographer and he was signed up to work on chess and to turn it into a stage show and you know awful news michael got ill and he eventually pulled out of the project when we were well on the way, quite quite near to an opening night um, in London. And eventually, it's sad to say, he, he died a year later. He was not at all well. Um, but what we should have done in retrospect was when, when, when Michael died was to, whatever it cost, we should have said to the cast, sorry, we're, we, 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 we can't go ahead. Um, even though we've got the sets, the theatre, everything, we're just going to have to cut our losses and open maybe in a year's time when we, we can, when we get everything together again with a, with a with another director. But the route we went was to Trevor Nunn stepped in gallantly and did a wonderful job working with a cast he hadn't picked, a sets he hadn't chosen. Um, but he was able to make quite a few changes. I mean, he came into the project just before rehearsal started. So we had six weeks to get a show going from scratch without really knowing what Michael had in mind. And the sets are already incredibly expensive. But there had to be changes made for Trevor's vision. And he got the show up and running. And it 
it it worked well. It was a hit in London, but it and we always felt that it wasn't quite right. Trevor felt that. And we all felt, well, if and when it goes to Broadway, we must rethink it or we'll start from scratch again. Um, and we hadn't really saved any money by getting Trevor to come in because um, in effect, we were almost paying for two shows, um, but only but only one opening because, you know, the sets were changed, a lot of things went on. And um, the, the, the show managed to make a profit, which was amazing, bearing in mind how expensive it turned out to be. And it was going to Broadway. And we decided, we'd all decided quite happily that, 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 that it would have to be changed for Broadway. But I'm afraid, and, and a book writer was brought in and I didn't really fancy that. I didn't think it needed a book. Um, anyway, there were, the, the atmosphere was never really great on chess on Broadway. There were too many factions, um, despite a very good cast. And of course, very talented director, talented um, musicians, Bjorn Benny, all that. Um, it didn't really work. But the only good thing that came out of the Broadway production, which only lasted for eight weeks, um, was a new song. Because when we were decided to rethink it, that involved at times bringing in one or two new songs, new material, to fit in with, with, with the book, which I didn't really like. Anyway, but I did write with Bjorn and Benny. They came up with this wonderful tune, and I put one new song in. Um, there were one or two other changes as well, but, but minor ones. And this song was called Someone Else's Story. And that was the only good thing that came out of the Broadway show. It was a great song, which um, never really got aired too much anywhere because the show only ran for eight weeks. But it became um, very popular in, in New York in particular as, as a song people would sing in auditions. And gradually the song became known as one of the best songs in chess. So when we did chess again, when it was done in other versions, we always said, just do the album and stick in someone else's story because that's a great song. And um, when we do chess, it's planned. Who knows what will happen, but it's planned to go to Broadway early next year. Someone else's story will be in it, but it will be much more like the original score. But it's a good song. I, I, I mean, I would put that in my top 10 songs. Yeah, it's a great song. Great song. Um, the power of a lyric is demonstrated so exquisitely um, in Evita. Uh, when even it's a shopping list, eyes, hair, mouth, figure, dress, voice, style, movement, hands, magic, rings, glamour. I mean, the list goes on, but it, it says so much about the woman who is Ava Peron. And uh, yeah. so Kristen Dior me, so Machiavelli me, so Lauren Bacall me. Um, where did where did the um, the genesis? Well, of it well, it was a great tune. I just had to come up. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a fashion expert. Um, I'm glad, this, <laughs> glad this isn't on television because um, you would see I'm not a fashion expert. <laughs> Frankly, <laughs> even <not> you. <laughs> oh, um, thanks. Thanks, so too. <laughs> but um, I, I just had to get as many aspects of a glamorous lady's kit, if you like, into the song. And um, I was by then and quite a bit of an expert on Ava Perron. I had lots of photographs of her books and, and it was a comparatively easy song to write. It's not a very easy song to sing, mind you. It's a, got an incredible range, but um, it was staged superbly by Hal Prince when he had these um, sort of servants and butlers and assistants and maids and, and, and dressers turning Ava Perron into something super glamorous. Um, that, and, and, it, it 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 just worked. I mean, I can't remember exactly how I chose the words. I mean, sometimes you can just go to a 
thesaurus and and you can, you can get a whole list of words you say well I'll, I'll just use those words um i don't think i did that with that one but but it was um yeah it's a good song rainbow high it was it's a it's a killer if that's the one if we're auditioning people for a vita we usually ask them to sing because if they can't sing that we'll we'll be in trouble but if they can sing it then we know they can do the rest of the score Another uh, lyric in the in the score of Evita, but on the other hand, she's slowing down. She's lost a little of that magic drive. But I would not advise those critics present to derive any satisfaction from her fading star. Sung by well, that's Peron. Peron. Yeah, that's Peron um, singing to his officers because Peron's regime is beginning to totter. There's lots of complaints. The army aren't happy with the way things are going. Um, and Ava is ill, um, and that is known to quite a few people that she might not be around very long. Um, and the officers, the army is singing to Peron, saying, you know, sorry, it has been singing to Peron, you know, she's she's um, caused all this trouble, we've got to get rid of her. And, and um, Peron is saying, well, actually, you know, even if she does go, um, She's the one who put you where you are. Her image, well, he's kind of guessing in a way that, that that her image will be even more powerful were she to die, which is probably true to begin with. I mean, the, the outpouring of grief and misery, um, genuine, that, that, that appeared in Buenos Aires um, when Ava died in 1952, sustained Peron for a bit longer, that's for sure. But eventually, he had to go and, and he was you know chased out of the country three years later but that's that, that that's a key moment in the show really you, you picked on it's towards the end when Heron is worried about his own position and we put another song in at that point for the film called you must love me and that was a nice song and 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 that was put in really um because in a film you can only win an oscar I mean, it sounds you know insane, really, but you can only win an Oscar if you write a new song for the film. I mean, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, say, could never have been nominated for an Oscar when, when Madonna did the movie because it was around before. It had been in a show, it had been on record, blah, blah, blah. But if you stick in a new song into the score, then that could qualify. And we wrote um, a song for Ava towards the end, um, when she knows she's dying. And almost, I mean, it was written, if we're honest, it was written ready to see if we'd have a shot at an Oscar. And by mistake, we wrote rather a good song. And um, it it did win the Oscar. I didn't think it would. Um, I thought we, we'd probably lose out to um, Diane Warren's song uh, for Céline Dion, um, which, which had been a big pop hit. And you must, you, you must love me had only just come out and hadn't at that point been any sort of success but it worked well in the film and Madonna sang it beautifully and it was a simple song and what I liked about it was that you must love me has two meanings it, it could mean you clearly love me I have deduced that you love me or it could mean please love me and it can be taken either way. And I think Ava herself was thinking both things almost at once. You must love me because I need to be loved. I'm in a terrible situation. 
the same time, I realized that you do love me. You know, it's it's crystal clear that you do. And these are almost opposites. But I, that's why I like that song. I shouldn't think more than one in 10,000 people who know that song have thought that. They probably just think, oh, you must love me, nice song. But that's in it. And I, it, it's an interesting thing for a, for a lyricist, I guess, um, that you often wonder what people get out of any lyric you've you've written, if anything at all. And I'm I'm intrigued really by the examples of my lyrics you've chosen, which are not obvious. Mm. You know, people you know, probably the next one you come up with will be obvious, but uh, it, it's <laughs> um, you know most people say, well, when you wrote "Don't Cry for Me, Argentina," and you think, oh god, here we go again. But you 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 pick some interesting lines, which apart from anything else prove that you must have studied the stuff I've done. So thank you for that. Oh, no, no, I, I certainly have. And um, I recommend your your podcast to our, to my listeners. Um, it's, it's Absolutely. Wonderful. I'm going to do another one now. <laughs> another <laughs> episode. Um, the gutter theatrical, I mean, three simple words, which I, I just think are so spectacular as as a lyric, as a statement. Yes, that's High Flying Adore. That's again from Evita. Evita, yes. I think we were, we were at our peak. I think technically Evita is the best show I did with Andrew. I'm not saying it's the one that works best as a show. I think of the three shows, Joseph, Evita, Superstar, Evita, I don't think either of us would change more than the odd tiny little thing. Um, whereas with Superstar and Joseph, when we were, you know, more more carefree and not quite so experienced, I think there are things I would change if I'd done them a few years later in my career. But on the other hand, that might have made the piece worse. I mean, they, they, Joseph and Superstar had their own energy, but um, gutter theatrical, yeah, I quite like that line, actually. It's so visual, it conjures yeah, up all sorts of... Rare song. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, Che is, is taking the, you know, he's being rude about her previous career, you know, um, implying that it hardly is a, is a, is a, is a, is a career at all, and that's all she is. Um, but it's a good song, High Flying Adored. It's got a beautiful tune. Originally, it was called Down on the Farm and written for a... Um, <laughs> A, a pop album written by, by a very good singer called Maynard Williams, which didn't do anything. And that tune is so good um, that, 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 that we put it into Evita. But the lyric of High Flying Adored really, to a great extent, matched my own feelings about having success. Mm. You know, and, and, I, and I was 26 when huge success came. Um, and that's, that's it. That That's in the lyric, a shame we did it all at 26. There are no mysteries now, all that. So that's writing a little bit about myself, but not really. I mean, I didn't want to complain and moan. <laughs> I was very lucky. I've got one more lyric to try on you. He Go found his it. he found his aroma lacked a certain appeal. He could clear the savannah after every meal. I'm a sensitive soul, though I seem thick-skinned, and it hurt that my friends never stood downwind. <laughs> Well, that's quite funny. That's um, uh, Pumba, um, yeah. and I always remember Elton saying, "He said, I, 'I'm this is extraordinary.' After twenty-five years in the business, or whatever it was, then he said, I wound up writing a song about a farting warthog.' <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but the funny thing is, I mean, it's a Hakuna Matata, which we both tossed off, if I if I may use that expression, very very quickly. It was just a funny song; it worked. 
But there's another verse um, which the meerkat sings, and you can find that verse in various Lion King CDs, Lion King recordings. And in the show, in the in the in the in the film, the meerkat verse was cut simply for time. Um, felt the song was too long. And I rather hoped that in the show, the stage version, that that meerkat verse would go back because it's only 45 seconds. And it it basically makes the it, it, it means that Hakuna Matata is not just about a farting warthog. No. It's about more than that. It's about, hey, I don't care. Let's um, you know, just let's live for the moment because Timon's verse um is 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 about I was in, you know, I was a meerkat and all, all I did was stand outside and you know, keep guard and watch out for things. And after a while I thought, why am I doing this? I thought, you know, I'm I'm mad. I'm just doing nothing. You know, I'm 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 or, or rather I'm doing a job which isn't really needed. And um so he and and so he gives it up and says, Hey, Akuna Matata, it doesn't matter, we've got no worries. Let's not get tied down with, you know, jobs and work and everything. And then you get Pumbaa's verse in which his problems and so Timon's put forward a moderately serious problem. Why am I doing this? You know, I'm a meerkat. I want to have fun. And then Timon, uh, then Pumbaa says, well, I've got a problem too. And that is I keep breaking wind, which is funny, uh, especially for kids. But it, 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 it's, it's Pumbaa not really appreciating that Timon's problem is a bit more serious. Um, and, and, and the whole Hakuna Matata thing can apply to lots of situations, not just to wind problems. So although I think it, I mean, it always works really well in the show, they, I, I would have liked Timon's verse to have gone back into the show. And sometimes when I'm doing the song on stage with um, great singers, I say, can, can, can we do the Timon verse as well? And they're always happy to do it. And it's it's such a popular song that you could have nine verses and I think the punters would still like it. But at the moment, you've only got one, really. And, and a chorus which repeats endlessly. <laughs> well, we can see it's become part of a popular uh, vernacular. Um, people yes, will just quote Hakuna Matata when they're in all sorts of scenarios. Yeah. And, um, exactly. Because yeah, generations have seen that show. And and you affectionately call The Lion King Hamlet with fur. Um, and if we are going by the Hamlet narrative, Hakuna Matata is like the gravedigger scene, isn't it? It's that that moment of, guess, of, yes. of laughter release that yes. we need. Yes, yes. In, in which they're part of a story, which Tom Stoppard sees Tom brilliantly in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, in which the gravediggers, they're, they're, they're part of a story, but they don't really feel they're in the story. I mean, which is really what Timon and Pumbaa feel. So I guess, that, yes, that, 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 that's an interesting comparison. Well, so Tim, you have many achievements uh, in your long career, uh, a knighthood, um, you've got an EGOT, an Emmy, a Grammy, uh, Academy Award, Tony Awards, uh, you've even got your own cricket team. Um, yeah, what do you, what, <laughs> well, I was going to say, what do you feel is your your proudest achievement, looking back on your um Well, I don't know, years? I mean, I've, I've, been very, I've been very lucky. Awards are fine, there are far too many of them, and if somebody could come up with a new way of doing an awards show, they'd make a million. Um, and I'm Jim Bonkers sometimes. I, I can hardly watch award shows, or a lot of them, because the speeches are so terrible or people use them for political you know, rants or 
whatever, and they're manifestly insincere in in, in some of the thank yous. Um, but listen, award shows are, 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 on the other hand, there's some good moments in them, and they can be they they can be fun. Um, but I I don't really think yes, gosh, this is the greatest you know highlight of my life. I mean, you know, corny though it sounds, it's um I've got some wonderful children and grandchildren and you know that this sounds really corny but that's the most important thing mm, yeah, you know yeah. um but i might not have um you know been i mean if 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 i i mean perhaps some of these awards have have you know people people like knowing that 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 an award means something i guess i i they're all down in um, Cornwall, actually. I, I'm sitting in in my dining room here, and I can't see any of them around. I don't think I've got any any up here, but um, I appreciate them. But I don't think they mean anything more than somebody liked what I did at the time. Well, so Tim, thank you for a stellar career. The words that you've given us through a myriad of of wonderful musical theatre experiences. Um, it's been an honour to, to talk to you today, um, and, and thank you for helping me celebrate the 400th episode. Well, I'm, I'm very grateful to you, Peter. I'm sorry that we had a few interruptions, but I'm sure you can um, edit them out or keep them in. It might be more fun. I think it'll um, be more fun if we keep them in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bloody kid out of here. <laughs> um, but I, but I, I, it's it's nice to talk to somebody who, you know, although you may be insane for doing so, who clearly has studied my stuff and and knows knows a bit about it so that's great i was worried at one point you might come up with a lyric i couldn't remember you know writing but um did i write that you yes <laughs> it's very good love, love potion number nine i thought no i didn't write that one i wish i had <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway well i'm I'm hoping, I'm hoping to come out i mean i've always enjoyed coming to australia and um not just for the cricket but the theater scene's always very good there as well and um i'm still in touch with the great Jim Sharman, who did a wonderful version of Superstar in Australia. And I always make a point when I come out to Australia, I always ring Jim and we have a drink or a whatever. Um, Jim also Kate directed lovely Kate, who connected us today. Yeah. So we must thank Kate, Kate Fitzpatrick. I kept in touch with her, met her way back in Superstar days in 72. She wasn't actually in Superstar, but she was a great friend of Jim Sharman and still is. And um, uh, then you've got your great Glenn A. Baker, who's a good good mate of mine, and oh, great. Up with yeah, 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 yeah. So I've got a lot of good Australian friends who I always make a point of trying to see, and a lot of cricketing friends there as well. Um, in fact, good, good, good Aussie cricket friends. And the Ashes are here this summer in England, so I I won't be coming out to Australia for the time being, but I'm hoping to get out there towards the end of the year. And um, there's usually a show. I, I I can usually find an excuse to come out for a show. But if not, I come up for the cricket. Well, the new Beauty and the Beast is about to open in June here in Sydney. Oh, right, okay. Well, I won't be there for that, I'm afraid. Um, being right in the middle. Actually, funny enough, I'm going to be in New York in June because um, there's, there's a <laughs> talking about awards. I'm getting an award, um, the Johnny Mercer Award award at the, at the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So um, that's quite fun. It's 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 quite a fun evening. Usually a bit 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 chaotic, but always always fun um and lovely people running it um so i won't be there in 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 june but and also i, I only wrote some of the words of beauty and the beast i mean it's uh, dear howard ashman wrote, wrote wrote the hits um 
anyway, I'll be down under soon and I hope to catch up with you. You know, see you in That'd the be flesh. lovely. That'd be lovely. All right. Great. Thank you, Sir Tim. Okay. Thank you so much for putting up with me and my supporting cast. <laughs> wow. I still can't believe that I had that conversation with Sir Tim Rice. Like many of you, I have grown up listening to his work extensively. We all know a Tim Rice lyric, or two, or three, or more. He is one of the greats, and how lucky are we to have had this audience with such a master of his craft. I must acknowledge my Stages Christmas episode co-host and dear mate of Sir Tim and me, Kate Fitzpatrick, for providing the introduction that has allowed this conversation to take place. So, 400. Little did I think that when I launched the podcast in April of 2018 that Stages would still be here delivering essential conversations with folk who have shaped and continue to shape the product we devour on Stages. My very first guest was the wonderful Tony Lamond. I am so grateful to every guest who has so generously and enthusiastically come on board with the show to tell their story. Thanks to those guests too who have seen such necessity in the podcast that they have recommended their colleagues and made those connections for me also. Thank you to the publicists who also provide access to extraordinary artists and offer such opportunity to conduct these conversations from a range of disciplines. As you know, drama, drag, musical theatre, dance, opera, cabaret, comedy, magic all provide such valuable, visceral experiences and feature on stages. And thank you to you. The listener, your words of encouragement and enthusiastic feedback provide the fuel that keeps the podcast going. There is such a need to record these valuable oral histories. I appreciate every suggestion, compliment and critique that you provide. Contact me through the socials on Facebook and Instagram or the email stagespodcastpete at gmail.com. Hip hip hooray, 400 episodes, brilliant. Thank you Sir Tim Rice and thank you dear listener for joining us. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time for episode 401 of Stages.